All right, today I'm actually going to do something to make us aware of what we've been doing on weeknights around here. And uh, every night, Monday through Thursday, we've been having prayer from 6.30 to 7.15, and anyone is invited to that. And I've kind of decided that I can only keep up with the pace of doing a teaching on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. But we're doing extensive teachings basically on how to fish for men. Jesus said, uh, follow me and I'll make you a fisher for men. And as we always say, the part, uh, part of fishing is, uh, as John has pointed out in his teachings recently, uh, you can't, net fishing, you can't do alone. You have to do that in community. Part of, one of the many reasons we are uh, called to be uh, covenant committed members of a, of a, a New Testament style church is that uh, our third ministry is ministry to the lost. We all have the ministry to the Lord, ministry to the body of Christ, and ministry to the lost. All, all Christians have those three ministries, uh, no matter what you, whether you're a husband, wife, doctor, lawyer, nurse, whatever you are, you have a ministry to God, a ministry to the body of Christ, and a ministry to the lost. And um, as uh, so... What we're really trying to do this summer is I've got, you know, basically a small handful of people that I'm focusing on trying to get them ready that we can multiply the number of people in the church that really know how to share the gospel effectively, how to lead people to Christ effectively, uh, and how to uh, disciple them effectively. We have a concept that we call the EPDC, which if you can... Um, if you can picture a clock, put it 12 o'clock E for evangelism, 3 o'clock P for pastoral care, and D at 6 o'clock for discipleship, and, and at 9 o'clock C for continuum, what we're called to do as Christians is walk people all the way around that clock until they're part of a community of people who are walking people all the way around that clock. And uh, that's, really, that's really the mission of Christ in a nutshell. Uh, you are called to show forth the glory of God, to, to, as Ray always says, to be a mediator of his presence. You're called to bring people into reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5, we have the ministry of reconciliation. And um, in so doing, you're not called to make decisions, as has come down to us in the last 150 years. A, a decision-making model of evangelism has emerged for historical reasons that I don't want to get into again today. And uh, what we got to get back to is a biblical discipleship-making model of evangelism. And as early as uh, 1974, when I began to study these things, um, I had myself gone forward at a mass crusade in 1972. And exactly what happened to me was, really, I had gotten a little bit more pre-evangelized. But because I went forward and prayed a sinner's prayer, I was declared to be a, a convert, but I wasn't, <laughs> at, not even close. And uh, uh, however, I was an atheist, and I did have the thought during the, the presentation, maybe there's something to this God thing. Maybe what this guy is saying right. He sure seems to be convinced, and he seems to be a powerful speaker. And then I reasoned, you know, if I went forward, my parents will quit bugging me all the time. They'll get off my back. So that was my motivation for going forward. 
Now, interestingly enough, you know, God does, no one can come unless the Father draws him. God had knocked on my heart enough that for about three weeks, I started reading the Bible. Now, the fear of man brings a snare, and all my brothers and sisters, when my parents became Christians, we all hated it, and we called them the parents, and we used to say, the parents have become Jesus freak. What the? <laughs> Blankety blank, it's wrong with them. <laughs> and uh, then they, you know, when they, the parents are speaking in tongues. The parents are reading all these Christian books. <laughs> you know, uh, what, what? They're going to these prayer groups on every night. And what, what's wrong with these people? And uh, so we weren't exactly understanding just yet. Uh, a little bit blind. And uh, so I didn't want my, my uh, siblings to know. So I would sneak down at night and ask my mom, a few questions about the Bible, but it took around three weeks before all this wore off, and and I went uh, into the world about ten times deeper than I. Whereas I used to smoke pot twenty or thirty times a week, now I started smoking pot two hundred or three hundred times a week, and uh, you know, uh, where I used to dabble in dealing drugs, now I got serious about it. Where I used to be uh, pretty uh, path, pathetic atheist, now I became a little bit more passionate atheist. And, uh, um, but I was far from converted to Christ and I was far from once saved, always saved or, or any kind of mistwisting of the, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that has come, come to be known now as eternal security, what some people call external impurity. And so, uh, even when I did come to Christ two years later, I began to question what's really happening when people pray the sinner's prayer. And really, the whole reason I embraced the whole concept of restoring the biblical community covenant-style church is because uh, the, the ways of evangelism in America eventually kind of degenerated through parachurch ministries, through altar calls, through a number of reasons. They degenerated into uh, people making a decision that they only knew maybe the tip of the iceberg about what they were actually praying and uh, statistics later came more and more to bear this out. Even, even most of the big evangelistic organizations were rec realizing that and saying, well, we need to go in a couple years ahead of time and prepare the churches for follow-up, and, and maybe we need to start putting some of the lordship of Jesus in the message and, and so forth. But none of the efforts were, were, went far enough. You all know that we, uh, not, I don't like to pick on particular groups, but we, we, uh, uh, as a church, about five, seven years ago, participated in the biggest evangelistic effort that's ever come to the Dayton area. Uh, second biggest missionary organization in the world. Uh, spent two years in Dayton speaking at churches and good message about how we have to convert to Christians before we can have this. Uh, and lots of things like this. Uh, definitely in the gospel presentations, they mentioned, don't come forward unless you intend to make Jesus as Lord. Now, everyone who's been involved in that has looked back on the fruit, and there really is no fruit. There is almost no documented evidence of anyone becoming a Christian and staying a Christian as a result. And statistics are range from, if you study the different organizations that study these things, anywhere from 1 out of 25 to 1 out of 20 who come forward in the decision-making model of evangelism ever show any biblical fruit of having been a Christian. And as you know, um, 
in Grace Christian Fellowship in our limited history, I would say at least 80% to 90% of the people who come here uh, have been at best what we're going to talk about today is pre-evangelized. And in many cases, their exposure to Christianity has more held them back than pushed them forward because they've come to expect Christianity to be uh, not very powerful, that God not to be very gracious or loving, and they can have their, their Jesus and do their own thing too and continue to live their sinful life and, and not take the advice of, of godly men in their life and do whatever they want to do, and they can still say, I'm saved and I'm baptized in the Spirit and, and I'm going to heaven and I do what Jesus wants me to do if... It doesn't bother me too much. <laughs> you know, but, but it's not really like the way I live. And uh, this is a heresy. And this is most dangerous to people's soul. This is giving people assurance that they're in a good place when and perhaps they're not. This is the church, which is supposed to be the pillar and supporter of the truth, has now become the pillar and supporter of deception. And I, I believe it that strongly. That's why we're doing what we're doing. So today I want to kind of introduce us to one of the ways. I have uh, three major ways that I go about uh, trying to restore the essential elements of the, of the gospel. That is the biblical kingdom gospel versus the Americanized modern gospel. And today I want to just introduce us to that. Um, and we're doing this on Tuesday and Thursday nights if you're interested. And it will be on a separate, you know how we have the podcast for Sunday school the podcast for um, John's messages, the regular worship service. There's a, a third category for Wednesday night services from last summer, which are primarily on the fact that we have to have a culture of prayer if we're going to do this, what we're talking about this summer. And so uh, Stephen and a lot of the guys have been listening to all those, and they, that's why they actually started the prayer meeting on Monday nights. And uh, that's why we're praying every night here from 6.30 to 7.15. And I hope you could join us once a week or once in a while. And Friday night, we're continuing to have prayer after worship on Friday nights. So um, hopefully we can eventually get a uh, 8.30 uh, Sunday morning prayer meeting going. And uh, at Sydney's house or my house, we don't really have the room here. Uh, but hopefully we could get, you know, we've tried that uh, at times, but haven't been able to sustain the effort. But hopefully we can. Because if you don't pray, you might as well not say, you know, uh, Really, no, nothing can be birthed without the travail of prayer. And, uh, and it has to be corporate prayer. It has to be a group of people calling out to God together. And if you want to know more about why, listen to those Wednesday night podcasts. So here we go. Uh, this is an introduction to eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel today. Uh, Roman numeral one introduction, I'm going to talk about A and B then I'm actually going to skip down to Roman numeral 2, and if there's time, I'll go back to Roman numeral 1, C, D, and E. Because uh, this week, I actually already covered A through E, and so you can listen to that on a podcast, but I didn't cover Roman numeral 2, and I want to make sure we get to Roman numeral 2 today. But I do want to repeat A and B, and if you are here this week, you'll notice that I switched the order of A and B. As I thought about it more, I switched it to a much more logical order. So, a is uh, lifestyle evangelism and proclamation evangelism. The meaning of the word euangelos, or euangelo is the Greek, um, is the verb. Euangelon is the, is the uh, noun form. 
But um, here's, here's um, a, a, a great problem and the source of all heresy and all think, thinking. All truths in Christianity are held in divine tension. In other words, all truths have a little bit of mystery to them that, are rational, that goes beyond our rational mind's abilities. And we're just required to accept it because the Bible presents it as so. So the Christianity starts, the first three truths of Christianity, which we can't go into in detail, are the Trinity. Um, three persons, eternally existent in one being. Now, I know all the formulas for it and stuff, but I've never heard anybody explain it that, that uh, perfectly because it's a mystery. Our God is one eternal existent being. And he's eternally existent in three in three persons: the Father, the eternally begotten Son of God. How do you do? How can you be an eternally begotten Son? <laughs> right? And and in the the, uh, the Holy Ghost, who's worshipped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. Right? The uh, another the second most important mystery in the Christian life is the dual nature of Christ, the eternally. Uh, eternal second person of the Trinity, the only begotten Son, uh, who, who has no beginning, no end, who's the Alpha and the Omega, who's, who it just is and was and is to come, at a point in time became a human being <laughs> in such a way that, he's, that, that there was a definite point in time for it. That's why the gospel started out with in the, in the uh, reign of King Augustus Caesar, a, a proclamation went out because he was born at a specific night in a specific time in a specific city in a specific uh, political geographical context. And he became 100% man. And he's 100% God. And 100% and 100% uh, in our natural mind don't add up to 100%. <laughs> and let, but, uh, you know, I had a friend named Louis Sabera who was very proud of his uh, Sicilian heritage. And he would always say, my father's 100% Sicilian. My mother's 100% Sicilian. I'm 200% Sicilian. And, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and uh, well, Jesus is 100% one being in such a way that the two natures remain distinct but perfectly united in one person uh, so that there's no confusion of the identity, yet he's one uh, unified being. The third mystery of the Christian faith is the scriptures. They are inerrant. God spoke his word and preserved his word over all kinds of translations, changes of, of kingdoms, changes of government, uh, Scriptures having to be smuggled out of here before the city was burned to take into there. God so worked in his word that every jot and every tittle, every apostrophe, every comma, of course there actually aren't apostrophes and commas in Greek, but uh, every little bit is, is, in, is exactly the word of God. And as I was discussing with Ray Yesterday, John has been bringing us focused on a thing that really what, what we have today is we have uh, many, many fundamentalists, many evangelicals, many people would give lip service to believing that it's inerrant, infallible. Er but not would, most people wouldn't embrace that every single word is crucial 
and important and has something to say. You know, that's why, you know, as John pointed out when he was talking about Jesus restoring Peter, that's why the Gospels take the time to say Jesus denied Peter three times at a charcoal fire. And Jesus restored Peter three times at a charcoal fire. And Isaiah 6 brings out the symbolism of charcoal when he's in the Holy of Holies, and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among people of unclean lips. Very similar experience to Peter when he threw himself down at the shore, having seen the glory of God in the catch of fish, and having his first revelation of who Jesus was, when he said, Depart from me, I'm not worthy. Anytime you touch God, you're going to have that kind of experience. That's how you'll know you're touching God. You'll be like, God, you have the wrong person here. Why are you calling me? Uh, am I ready to do it? I'm, I'm, I love the work God is doing in John Bradbury's life. And uh, yesterday, as we were talking about praying to receive Christ, he's like, I don't know. Am I ready? I, I know I'm going to fail. And, and I'm like, that's why, you know, that's why you're ready. <laughs> Until you know you're going to fail, uh, you might as well, you're not quite ready yet. <laughs> and uh, because you know you need rescued. Don't, you don't need a Jesus to come in and come into my life because I've made a few mistakes and I might need you in a pinch to, to stay in the back seat. If, if things get bad, I'll call on but I'm running, I'm driving, don't, don't even get any ideas that you're in control. That's really what we mean by the sinner's prayer today. And uh, so um, all that's to say that you have this big debate among Christians over two seemingly paradoxical concepts. There will be people who say, no, we don't need to go out and preach the gospel door to door or open in the open air or knock on doors or in the, at the table from table to table in the student union. We don't need to do that because that's obnoxious and it's offensive. And we're living in times where people are predisposed to be anti-Christian in their thinking. And so it won't work. Well, I declare to you that you just contradicted the Bible about five different ways. And, um, and who's right, God or you? So what we need, though, people will say, is we need to live our lives right. We need to have lifestyle evangelism. The limitation of that is um, in the 70s, uh, the churches I was associated with decided to build kind of an Antioch church that was full of leadership. So they took at least one elder from bunches and bunches of our churches and formed a whole community out in Campbell, California, uh, San Jose area and that kind of area. And uh, they said, you know, we're going to just show by the superiority of our lifestyle how godly we are. We've got all these mature Christians. Everybody in the church is a mature Christian. Uh, most of the people that were just, you know, um, mowing the lawn or whatever had been used to being the head elder here and there and so forth. And, and the, the one guy goes, you know what? No matter how much we tried to, to have, an, you know, we had four or five Christians that lived on this one cul-de-sac. And we thought we would demonstrate the kingdom by having nice yards and having the lawn mowed and the edges trimmed and the weeds done and, and so forth. Though no matter how much we worked at it, the gay guys down the street had a nicer lawn than everybody. <laughs> and their house looked much better than everyone else's. And, uh, you know, the Bible is full of exhortations for lifestyle evangelism. 
First Peter 1.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things that they accuse you of, they may on account of your good works have to glorify God. Believe me, there's actually part of the spirit of rebellion. You can see it in the late night talk show host. Why are the late night talk show hosts always making uh, basically that's really vicious, mean humor? They're always tearing this person down and that person down and so forth. What they really delight in is when people of fame and power fail, right? They love to mock the presidents and the congressmen and and the newspaper people and no, no, not that so much. The sports people and the movie stars and to point out their feet of clay and how they, uh, how, you know, uh, of course, they don't make fun of themselves usually even though they do just as stupid of things, right? But he, the, the Satan is actually called in Revelation 12, the accuser of our brethren. The word diabolos, devil, means slanderer. And one of his primary ministries is to slander God to you. I wish I could develop that. We, we actually taught on that this week. He's going to slander God to you as he did in Genesis 3. He's going to slander the church to you, especially your leaders. And that's why you shouldn't receive an accusation against an elder except in the basis of two or three witnesses, and you're not even in your heart. And he's also going to slander you to you. That's why in in the gift in that, because all spiritual warfare is a a God-sent gift, and you, you overcome you build strength by overcoming resistance repeatedly. So as you cry out to God for grace, you begin to learn how to walk in grace instead of condemnation. Because when he's slandering you to you, you can't overcome that as long as you stand in condemnation. You must begin to embrace Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. You have to, uh, I joke about this all the time around the house. My wife and I love to, and she gives it back to me sometimes. But at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, 21, Paul says that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So if my wife says something like, uh, I need to pick up all the clothes I left at the end of the bed, I'll just go, okay, I will. But I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but uh, you know, just a joke. But the truth is, you got You bet. You need to start seeing yourself as that. You are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. And you'll never overcome condemnation on the basis of how good a week you had. All right. So we. I, what, so we get this. People say we should do lifestyle evangelism. And I'm here to say that's right, but not if it means only. Believe me, Paul points out and the Old Testament points out, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles. When you call, the, that's why to take the name of the Lord in vain isn't just to use Jesus as a swear word. It's that a little bit. But it's to call yourself a Christian and continue to openly get drunk and sleep with other women and, and whatever. Be, a, be, be late for work all the time. Uh, not be trustworthy, not to steal from the, where you work. Um, it's, to, it's to call yourself a Christian and not live it. 
That is taking the name of the Lord in vain, and it's a most serious sin. Now, however, the Bible is full of verses that says, go out and proclaim. Yangelon just means to announce or to herald good news. And um, if you know anything about the uh, medieval towns of Europe and the, and the colonial towns, they used to hire a person to be the herald. And his job was uh, uh, on the hour, sometimes more often, depending on the size of the town and depending on what was happening, he would go out and say, it's one o'clock and all is well. Or he would say, it's one o'clock and Mrs. McGillicuddy died. And he would announce what was happening. He would herald what was happening throughout the streets of the city. Much like many cities are starting to try to put early warning uh, systems in for tornadoes and so forth to herald, hey, the tornado's coming. <laughs> Get out of bed. Get down to the basement. Um, and so forth. To, that's, what, that's what evangelism means. It means, hey, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And we are telling you, Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Run from the wrath of God. One of the things John's been pointing out in terms of these missing elements of the American gospel, all the gospel presentations of the New Testament uh, warn of judgment, not a single exception. God, Paul in Athens, God has fixed a day to judge the world through one man, Jesus Christ. He's saying this to stoic, epicurean, natural-minded philosophers who don't even know there's one God. So I guess I took a long time on that point, but, you know, we can't go anywhere if we don't get convinced of this. There, there is a requirement to do proclamation evangelism. I am totally fine with the fact that it may not be possible in our day and age to mature people to a point where everyone in the church is involved in that, at, at least on a regular basis. But everyone can help be involved in that with their prayers, with being more faithful with their tithing, with being more faithful in their attendance. Do you know when, you know when, um, yesterday I was, had a nice, pleasant surprise because um, Jason and Carla took a, a trip out of town, and I said to Ray last night, I'll bet you Jason and Carla are coming back for the Sunday morning meeting and, uh, and, and, and cutting their weekend short so they can be with us, which they did, and uh, very predictable because of their character. And then I said also, uh, Friday night, I said, said to John, you know, Jason's out of town. I need you to be Jason tomorrow. And uh, I came, came by, and, uh, and it was just Sam and John, and, and they'd been at it for a couple hours, and I could see they'd gotten one of the jobs I'd asked them to get done done. And I said, how long have you guys been at it? And Sam said, oh, an hour and a half, two hours. I'm like, I, said, I don't think we're going to make it if we just have two guys. So I made a few calls, and basically said, we need, and next thing I knew, we had like about five more volunteers, and so I appreciated that. Um, we could really use some help, because you know what? People are shallow, and guess what? <laughs> you know, when we were debating whether to put uh, the power flush toilets in the <laughs> basement or, or cheap residential ones, John Gray said, 
I think people really like it when they come to a church and, and things are nice. <laughs> and I said, I think you're right. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, lifestyle evangelism is important, and we can all contribute to the community's effort. Proclamation is important. Just being uh, one of the, you know what, uh, the, the, you know, Chris and Amanda Wu said this. A lot of people have said this to me. The reason they stayed was how friendly our church was. In fact, interestingly, the way things worked out, the, I think it was the first Sunday Ray was here, and I think maybe John and Emily or Jason and Carla sat with them, and the next weekend it was Larry and Martha and some, or Larry, whoops, Lisa, get that off the tape. Larry and Lisa, <laughs> habit. Um, knew I was going to do that in public someday. Um, and... You know, I didn't even get to sit with the woos and talk to them until they'd been coming like three or four weeks, which which was kind of cool. Uh, uh, better for them. But uh, <laughs> uh, so I hope, you know, so let's look at this. In Jesus, Jesus, on you know, on the, in Matthew 28, 16, on the mountain in Galilee, remember last week's teaching, he gave the Great Commission. And he said, don't go into all the world, just show them by your lifestyle. And don't preach the gospel to all nations. And don't make disciples just decisions. And teach them some of the things. Teach them that it's okay to pick and choose all the things I've taught you. I'm just Americanizing it for you so you'll be more comfortable. Because we wouldn't want you to be uncomfortable. But, uh, right? He, he said, go. Get up. Get up out of your seats. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Get out of here. <laughs> go. And, you know, all of our evangelistic efforts these days are designed to get them on our turf only. Like most people think the best way to lead someone to Christ is to bring them to church and let the pastor save them. Getting them to church for reasons we'll study in this summer and so forth is very important. If God is drawing them, they're going to want to be around the living saints. They're going to start liking us. You know, Beth hated us for a couple of years, and then she started liking us. <laughs> and then, and I used to always tell Leah Gray that that day was coming, and Leah used to think I was on drugs. <laughs> well, she might have been right, but uh, <laughs> but but uh, but I I always knew it in the spirit, right? And so. It's important to get them in on our turf, and they're going to want to hang out with us if God's working in their life and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but that's not all there is to it. You have to preach the gospel to them. All right, man, sent way too long on that. Let's get point B. Pre-evangelized Jerusalem, Athens. I, I really developed this on the on. So if you're really into this point, please, uh, but. Please uh, can uh, look at or listen to the podcast from uh, from this week's teachings. I went into this in great detail, but you hear all the time this either or thinking. We shouldn't preach the gospel like Paul did in Acts seventeen. People say uh, Paul is showing us that um, apologetics and intellectual arguments and evidential arguments and presuppositional arguments don't work because look at the limited fruit he had in Athens. Whereas Peter just got right down to proving who Jesus was. 
And he, as John, if you want to go back and hear John's 15-part uh, series about uh, finding Christ in the Old Testament, part zero was called, uh, was based on Acts 2. And he shows how Peter's message is, is that all the Jewish people were expecting the Lord, Yahweh, Emmanuel, God with us. That was an expectation of, of all Jewish people. And they were expecting Mashiach or Christos, the anointed one. Now, they did not necessarily have that as the same thing, event, and the same person in their mind. In fact, most contemporary ideas of what that was uh, didn't look like that. And Peter's sermon shows them that God has made it clear now, he's made manifested that Jesus is both Yahweh, God with us, the Lord among us, Emmanuel, and he is Christos, the anointed one. And you killed him. The person you think you've been waiting for all these times, when he visited us, you did not say, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord. You said, there's the heir, let's kill him. And that's why they were cut to the quick so deep. Now, you hear all the time, that's how we should preach because 3,000 people were added. What's wrong with that thinking? Hopefully, we don't, don't have time for discussion, so hopefully I'm just making you think about it in your head. Simply as this, the Acts 2 people were a concept that Jim Peterson and from Navigators and many other people call pre-evangelized. As Acts 2 makes clear, they were Hellenistic Jews from all over the Roman Empire. And I, I went into great detail uh, this week about how the synagogue system developed in the intertestament period and how there were Jews throughout the Roman Empire and, the, and they, would learn the, they would learn Hebrew and, and some of them were biological Jews, some of them were actually born of these other uh, nations. And they were, so everyone who was there was a believer in Yahweh. They were a believer in the law. They were a believer in the attributes of God and so forth. And so Peter didn't relay that ground. But when Paul is speaking in Athens, He's speaking to Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. Now, because of the uh, humanistic pro-Greek biases that you would get at the university, if you study Greek philosophy, you won't hear this part of it. You'll hear that Stoics were all about being disciplined and keeping your emotions in check and so forth, and you'll hear Epicureans were about limiting how much, limiting excesses and so forth. But what they miss, as everyone always does, that's the surface truth. But both of them had an underlying agreement. They were debating, how can I narcissistically, selfishly, hedonistically get the most happiness and pleasure out of life? That was their whole purpose. I'm here to part, you know, and the, 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 uh, the uh, Epicureans were a little bit like someone who's 25 or 35 who basically said, well, I used to party when I was in high school, man. And, and then I learned that, you know, like if you party too much, it's there, you just get sick. <laughs> you know, and you come home and you don't realize till the next day, why is my face bruised? Because I got in a fight and I don't even remember. And so the Epicureans basically said, too much excess will, will, is not the way to the maximum selfish pleasure. And the Stoics said, uh, working a plan and being rigid and working out and having a day timer and, and so forth is the way to be rich and powerful and, 
and have it have it all. And that's who Paul's talking to. And they are, they are, uh, there are some in the audience who are polytheists, believing in the Greek and Romans God, but most of them are just atheists. So Paul starts with talking to them about their statue to an unknown God and who that God is. But then he includes the historical evidence of the resurrection. And... Uh, Knowing what Jesus said, that if they have Moses and the prophets, if they won't believe that, neither will they believe if someone rises from the dead, because so evidential apologetics can only take you so far. That is the showing the evidences and the truths of Christianity from a historical, legal point of view. Uh, so, which I think is wonderful. I, Josh McDowell, uh, Lee Strobel, those are the most accessible pop culture ones that are most popular, but... You know, N.T. Wright, if you want to really get into it, has like a big fat book like that on evidences for the resurrections, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Gary Habermas, there's lots of them out there that fan, worth reading. Build your faith. But that, you know what? The resurrection will stand up in a court of law, but that won't necessarily make people repent. Neither did the miracle. You know what? I'm all for miracles. Part of this is we have to have demonstrations of the spirit and power. Anything less is not, not the biblical gospel. But that won't make people repent either. Only God grants repentance. And, you know, Jesus gave a whole list of woes to cities who had seen his miracles and still didn't repent. All right, so hopefully I've made the case uh, a, a little bit or at least introduced you to the thought, and as you read the Scripture, look for it. You know, Romans 10, how can they hear without a preacher? How can, you know, how can they believe unless someone preaches? Mark 16, go into all the world and preach the gospel. At John 21, as the Father sent me, so I sent you. The word as means in exactly the same manner, model me. If your Christian community looks like how Jesus was sent by the Father, and we can say, yeah, if you want to know how Jesus lived, just, just hang out with us. And one of the things Jesus did is he took the gospel to the streets, to the mountaintops, to the people. All right, in the remaining time, seven minutes, let's uh, see if we can at least introduce eight essential elements of the biblical gospel. Hopefully you're getting where I'm going. This is not an either or, it's a both and, and it's absolutely essential that we get that. Might as well not go any further if we don't have that. That's why I belabored it. I always feel like I got to deliver my soul. Like there's still going to be people who go, well, I just, I'm just going to sit here and go to church every week and, and be a consumer of religious services. I'm not going to go do anything. So... All right, so um, number one, God. I don't have a long time to develop this, but I want to give you two points. A, B, I'm, I'm betwixt and between, which is to put first. I'll put the more obvious one. Most people in the world that we're dealing with today do not have a concept of a biblical God in their mind. Maybe they have a concept of the force being with you. Uh, maybe they have bumper stickers uh, you know, I, I talked to God this morning. She was great. Uh, may, what, you know, uh, 
you know, whatever. But most worldly people do not have a biblical God. In fact, the, one of the things that we're about is we want to raise up campus ministries at Wright State. I hope someday we could get on UD campus if we could grow Wright State more. I hope we can get at Central State, Cedarville. Would you imagine of sharing the kingdom at Cedarville? I'm so excited about that. <laughs> I mean, they'll hate us, and but we'll love it. And uh, Jesus is still alive, and he still does miracles, and he's the same Jesus, and, and he's going to change the whole world. Uh, and you're in the left behind series is heresy <laughs> and all that. So, um, um, I'm so excited about the Ohio state university, you know, my favorite t-shirt, uh, long and long ago. In fact, I had two of them. I liked them so much. I bought two was, uh, an Ohio state t-shirt that said Ohio state university, the world is our campus. And it had over 80 flags on the front and back of of the uh, the countries that international students go to Ohio State from. You thought there's a lot of international students at Wright State. Ohio State has more international students. Listen to this than any other college in the world. And that's why there's rightly some wonderful Christian groups that focus on the campus, as we will. So. Um, most of those people, if, you know, uh, if you're talking to a Hindu guy, he doesn't believe in a personable God that has the attributes that you're studying right now in the, today's session of theology is about the non-communicable and the communicable attributes of God. And I was, uh, I had a good chuckle, uh, yesterday because Logan came home and said, Oh, I really love Anvesh. We're hanging out. We're having fun. And we just had a big fight for like an hour about whether this particular thing was a communicable or non-communicable attribute to God. And I'm like, what a great thing to fight about. Did you? I hope you wrestled too on the floor. And so, you know, <laughs> well, uh, that might not be a fair fight. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, you know, like, wow, good. You know, that was like, I'm like, that's cool. Um, you know, most you, the reason you need to know about the attributes of God is because most people you're talking to don't know. Point B on that is it's even about the same uh, among Christians. Even, you know what I like to do, this is a strategy of mine on purpose, the reason I use Dallas Willard and you'll be, We'll be uh, soon stressing a book uh, by the Nine Marks people on uh, church membership and covenant community and so forth. I like to find evangelicals that are saying the evangelical church is wrong on all this, and we got to get back to the biblical way of seeing it. Because no matter what you talk about, there's a few people here that see this truth, a few people here that say that truth, and a few people that see this truth. Now, nobody's putting it all together, which is what God has ultimately we're trying to do. But what's really important about it is, uh, is um, I, you know, I like to find evangelical guys that are pointing this and that out. You'll find lots of evangelical guys that are pointing out that our whole way of doing church, our presentation of the gospel is very man-centered and it's very appeals to the narcissistic people. We start with God has a wonderful plan for your life wrong <laughs> that's that's true 
but but you've got God wants to save them from that orientation. You know what? He created you for his glory first. He loves you. He has a wonderful plan for your life. But his wonderful plan for your life is to quit being worried about your wonderful plan and and to love him and serve his wonderful plan so that you can be liberated. And that will cause, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. If you're looking for your wonderful plan and, and, and having your best life now, you're hopeless. Although you sell a lot of books, if you can write that. But if you're but if you're looking to forget about your best life now, like people say, are you happy? And I go, am I happy? I'm a Christian. I'm, I haven't thought about it. Uh, you know, that's not even a category in my in motivation. However, I guess if you force me to answer the question, yes, but, but that's because I don't even care about being happy. I care about you. I care about God. I care about my wife. I care about how my kids are turning out. I care about reaching the lost. I don't have time to think about whether I'm happy or not. Now, whether I'm stewarding my finances and health and so forth to maximum productivity in the kingdom, I can think about that. But does everyone get that? Hey, would you get me another bottle of water? Even though I only got, actually, I'm out of time anyway. Forget it. Uh, (laughs) I I don't even. So if you can even get this. Notice that I, put, uh, I started to put the bad news after number one, two, three, is four. We don't even preach a gospel that has bad news in it. But the, they will never be interested in the good news till they come to know and believe deeply the bad news. And so that's so, so, so essential. Um, a biblical psychology of man sin, the Ten Commandments. I wish I uh, hadn't spent all my time. Maybe I'll do this again next week, but I probably won't. But I will be doing this on Tuesday and Thursday nights. I'm going to probably get back to the Kingdom of God series. I got a new computer, and I had a busy day Saturday, so I didn't have a chance to even look at it. So I just decided to do something that uh, took an hour to put together instead of uh, eight hours. And uh, but probably we'll get back to our Kingdom of God series on Sunday. But if uh, if you're here on Tuesday nights and Thursday nights, and if you're not, that's why we have podcasts. Amen.